Welcome to Current Affairs Taiwan. Mike, what have we got up on the show today? We have another great show. Uh, we talk about China pressuring Taiwan militarily and on the broader global front with a massive propaganda push. We've got a moment again with Han Goyu, the mayor of Kaohsiung, who may not be the mayor of Kaohsiung in a couple of months, about to be recalled. We talk about the complexities of changing the name of the national airline. What are we doing with that anyway? We look at the uh, plans for subsidizing universities in the wake of China's decision to not send us any more um, students. We talk about the KMT and Johnny Chang, who's making, who's still making some good moves, and some a uh, few other things about uh, the European Parliament and this and that overseas with Taiwan's uh, international soft power reputation. So stay tuned. It's going to be a good show. Okay, folks, welcome back to another brilliant episode of Current Affairs Taiwan. I'm Michael Turton, and I'm here with the awe-inspiring Donovan Smith. Donovan, do we have a sponsor today? Um, no, but there's another one, I believe, that's about to, that'll come in next week. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. So what's in the news? Well. I heard that China was going to, I heard China was knocking on the door with their guns and ships and planes this week. Yes, definitely. Drills off the coast. And what did the experts say? That was a People's Daily publication you were telling me. Yeah, here's, here's a, a quote. Now, this is what's kind of alarming about this is that when they run something in the People's Daily, although this was originally written by Global Times, which is usually the trial balloons, a little bit more out there stuff, they re-ran the article in the People's Daily, which means that this has kind of an official stamp on it. And so now they're quoting experts, so it's not official, official government policy but running in the People's Daily means it's semi-official, hint, hint, this is what we really believe, policy. Right. So the quote is, the Chinese People's Liberation Army reportedly held military drills featuring warplanes near the island of Taiwan on Friday, and such drills having taken place at least four times since the traditional spring festival holiday in January have become regular and are now a part of military struggle preparations against the island, mainland experts said on Friday. And then another one here. Uh, a mainland expert and TV commentator told Global Times on Friday that the drills were part of preparations for the potential military struggle against the island of Taiwan, and such drills have become regular and routine. The same expert uh, said also that he expects the PLA to gradually hold larger and more frequent drills and for the drills to become more targeted and have more deterrence, such as decapitation strikes against secessionist forces and aerial denial operations against foreign intervention. So clearly that last remark, aerial denial, ops, denial operations against foreign intervention, clearly the same with the U.S. And let's not forget Japan, which also has a deep interest in defending Taiwan. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they, the th they're clearly sending a message with that one. Yes. Um, and for a change, it's not, I think it's not just for the domestic audience. I think this was, this one actually had a foreign audience in mind, which right. they usually, I think don't, but it's, it's interesting to note that the U S has that first of all, the people's Republic has been upping their 
exercises and flybys and all that recently. But the U.S., in response, has done so as well. Yeah, 10 times, it says, in the last three weeks here. Yeah. And, of course, there was a... um, a U.S. Navy guided missile destroyer sailed through the Taiwan Strait and a carrier group, a Chinese carrier group passed by the eastern coast of Taiwan. And they also conducted exercises. So there's been a lot of military activity in the neighborhood. That's uh, I think that's going to be the new norm, according to this expert. Right. I'm curious to see yeah. whether the Japanese get involved, whether we see more and more Japanese uh uh, military units down here. It would be good. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Yeah, it would be really good to see that, to, to remind people that there's an interest there. I'm also curious to see when President Duterte of the Philippines starts realizing that they're the next target. You know, I mean, <laughs> Funny, that was exactly what I was just thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, it's, it's very... It's very obvious, you know, the, the, there's some weird nationalist uh, claims to Bataan Island. And, of course, the Chinese have been giving the Philippines trouble over some of the uh, features of the South China Sea that the Philippines currently owns. So it's going to be an interesting <laughs> next few years here. Yeah, definitely. Meanwhile, on the international front, at the same time that China's been trying to intimidate us uh, militarily, They've also been conducting a multi-pronged uh, propaganda campaign trying to convince people that the Taiwan said racist things about Ted, bring out your dead Tedros of, uh, of the WHO. <laughs> so <laughs> this week it was, um, they had approached French parliamentarians. I think 80 of them signed things condemning Taiwan for racist accusations. Some such nonsense like that. And uh, it's appalling. It's stupid is what it is. I mean, nobody checks that. How does anyone believe China after all this time? It still amazes me. They can't possibly have splashed that much money around just for that. In, um, Jenna Lynn Cody on uh, Laura and Cha, the, the blog, right. actually wrote a very long piece on, on the People's Republic, the Communist Party, using using the 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 language of the left in, you know, in the West, in the the Western left to uh, push an authoritarian agenda. And this is part of that. Right. Right. And they got the state of Wisconsin legislature, I think. Yeah. I I just saw that. Yeah. And one of the local Wisconsin papers actually released the text that the Chinese had sent to the legislature, a resolution praising China for its action against the virus. And we had talked about this, what, a few shows ago, how they would be expanding their action against local governments. They've already been very successful in Australia doing that. And now it's going to start coming to the United States. We're going to be seeing this more and more. It's something that uh, local Taiwan groups in the U.S. need to be tracking and need to be responding to. Yeah. And another thing they've been doing, uh, the Chinese papers, Chinese language papers that are close to the PRC in Singapore, not only did they publish these accusations saying that the Taiwan government had painted, had made racist uh, statements about the head of the WHO, they named names in their piece. So I haven't mm. tracked down the exact, I haven't tracked down the article yet, but that's what's been circulating on Twitter. So this is a multi-pronged global effort to smear Taiwan because Taiwan, as we know, is doing so well with its mask donations and its medical uh, equipment donations and whatnot. It's really, it's super great soft power for Taiwan. 
Yeah, I mean, the uh, Tedros's comments about how the Taiwan foreign ministry basically looked the other way while Taiwan was behind, you know, Taiwanese were behind all these racist attacks on them. I, I, it, it seemed to come completely out of nowhere. It, um, you mean like it was scripted? <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 I had, uh, had an interesting discussion um, on this, and I don't know if the PRC fed that line to him or Tedros just picked up with that in order to show his loyalty to them and came up with it on his own. I, I don't know which it is. I'm going with A but, on that because the previous head was Chinese and she had appointed a bunch of, you know, Chinese positions there where they would now be in a position to influence him. Yeah. Yeah. But you were saying? Well, yeah. The the thing that I find really interesting, actually, I, I thought that uh, President Tsai had a fantastic response. And this is what she had as her statement to responding to Tedros's claims. For years, Taiwan has been excluded from international organizations, and we know better than anyone else what it means, to, what it feels like to be discriminated against and isolated. If Director General Tedros could withstand pressure from China and come to Taiwan to see our efforts to fight COVID-19 for himself, he would see that the Taiwanese people are the true victims of unfair treatment. Wow. Bam. That was a nice one. Mm -hmm. And on uh, Facebook and Twitter today, people were sending around examples of how uh, Umao, the 50 Cent Brigade from China, had been pretending to be Taiwanese and to apologize to Tedros for making racist remarks about him. <laughs> yeah, I see. It's obviously a coordinated effort. So, and, and of course, a lot of them were well. using simplified characters right. and working off a template. And, yeah, yeah, it's very clear. But there was one disappointing thing. I think it was a MOFA spokesperson um, or presidential office spokesman I, I, off the head. Of, I think it was a MOFA Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesperson who claimed that Taiwan, there is no racism in Taiwan. Well, what a moron. What a yeah, moronic thing a to say. Stupid. Yeah. And considering President Tsai's very powerful response, that, that really kind of undercut that. Yes. And, and then, we need, we don't need to go into it. I mean, you and I have been here for three decades. We know. So <laughs> don't want people to know how old I am. I'm sorry. I meant, I meant three months. <laughs> yeah. So at least in Europe, there was a group of what? 127 parliamentarians who had, mm -hmm. who had signed a petition saying, or signed something that we had done a great job praising Taiwan for its efforts. And that uh, Taiwan should be allowed into the WHO. That, that was the important thing. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what's happening at home here? How about Han Goyer? Are we still going to recall him? Well, <laughs> two of his lawyers have decided to sue to try and stop it. And now there, this is a three-step process. The first step, there was a first phase where you collect signatures of a, a collect the, that qualifies you to do a second phase. Then in the, and that's a relatively small number of signatures that you need. Then there was a second phase, and then you, in, in Kaohsiung's case, they needed to get over, uh, I think it was 290,000, roughly, people to sign off uh, on, uh, you know, on the recall, and then the recall vote goes ahead. 
So we're already at that point. The recall vote is assuming the legal challenge doesn't work is going to go ahead in June. Now, in the June recall vote, you need to get over 500,000 people in Kaohsiung to vote yes to remove him, and then he's out. Now, the problem is, is that he, he got two lawyers to, tr- to sue on this to try and stop it. But the, the, because the law says that, that a recall campaign, uh, you can't do a recall campaign in the first year of office. Now, he's saying that, and this is true, that the people who were collecting the signatures for the first phase started collecting those signatures before the one-year mark. However, uh, a spokesperson for the Ministry of the Interior said there's nothing in the law saying you can't, can't, you can't collect the signatures beforehand and because the, you know, and then submit them after the legal one-year mark. Right. So a, a lot of analysts think that it's that that hands ploy isn't going to work. The other thing that people are complaining about is why are you bringing up the first phase now? That was a long time ago. Exactly. So it's it appears <laughs> a little bit desperate. Yes, it does. It does appear to be kind of a violation of the spirit of the thing, but it does. But that's not how it works. Yeah. Yeah. Unf- unfortunately for hand, but probably fortunately for us. So. And then last week we had talked about the name possible name change for the airline, China Airlines. Mm-hmm. What's going on with that? Well, okay. So Lin Jialong uh, posted up on Facebook. He said he, he's open to the idea, but he said it's no small thing. And he said because the name China Airlines is tied to the flight routes and, and, and rights you know, landing rights and things like that. Right. So that's one problem. And he also said that the it's all a publicly sh- a publicly owned company. So he said that essentially this needs to have the consensus of the shareholders and a consensus with the broad public. Now, in the legislature, a spokesperson for Lin Jialong's department, the Ministry of Transportation and Communications, said uh, reiterated that they are open to changing the name. I think that's a really valid point. In fact, if you change the name and they have to renegotiate landing rights, that could get very dangerous because whenever Taiwan Airlines try to negotiate landing rights somewhere, the Chinese get in to try and block them, which means that we would be renegotiating rights that we've had for years against a far more influential and powerful China. So just for that reason alone, this is probably not something that we should be doing. But it it makes me wonder whether the question we should be asking is, why do we need a national airline anyway? (laughs) <laughs> That's when a very we, good point. When we've got, we've already got Eva Airlines, which is really good. And then we have this new startup. What's it? Skyjet or something? Sky? Starlux. Starlux. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I guess, uh, you know, former, former Air Force pilots need employment. Yeah. And <laughs> the government is, of course, the largest shareholder right. in China Airlines. But yeah, no, that's a very good question. It, it might just simply be easier to shut it down yeah. and, or sell the airline off. Right. Privatize piece it. Piece by piece to the other. Yeah, to, to Eva the, and, uh, Star- yeah. and Starlux. Yeah. <laughs> that would completely remove the problem right there. Right but there. Yeah. That would be I, a really I would assume good that, the, that the other shareholders uh, might have some problems with that. 
Well, you know, this is Asia where majority shareholders are always expropriating the property of minority shareholders. <laughs> There's a whole yeah. room of academic literature on this. <laughs> yeah. So what else have we got going here? Oh, the Chinese students were ordered out of Taiwan universities this week. Well, the ones who are still here have the option to stay. Right. And finish their studies. Right. But the now this I thought was interesting. It was China said it was stopping all new uh, any any new students from going to Taiwan to study. And it said two reasons. One was because of the whole coronavirus outbreak. OK, right. fair enough. That's normal. But they said the other one because of the political situation. Oh, blaming Taiwan again. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So the government now has pledged 400 million NT to aid universities to help make up for the shortfall. Now, according to that uh, article, there's there's some, there was like 8000 students of which some hundreds are still in Taiwan. I taught many um, when I was teaching. So uniformly, the, the they were PRC said. Though that uh, they they sorry <laughs> cutting you off there no it's okay. uh, but the the PRC uh, um, also said though that all of their incentives and all of the rights of Taiwanese to study in the PRC remain in place of course mm. <laughs> well the whole point of having the Chinese students here anyway was to create a subsidies for the universities because we have so many of them way more than we need there's yeah. sooner or later there's going to be a shakeout the government can only supply so many subsidies. So mm -hmm. a lot of these universities had opened in the, you know, 2000s under Chen Swabian when they expanded the subsidy system. And so you could, I think you had to reach around 4,000 students to break even. And then you had to have a certain number of facilities that had to pass um, inspection, pass the MOE, you know, evaluation. And then you could receive subsidies. So they'd opened all these universities to farm these subsidies, basically. So they've been struggling for students ever since. So this is a long-term problem that 13 million U.S. dollars is not going to solve. And, and of course, the amazing part about that is, is they, they allowed it to get totally out of control. They already knew the birth rate was collapsing. Exactly. It, this is such an obvious, you know, this is a train wreck waiting to happen and everybody knew it was going to happen. You know, you could just say that about everything that goes on in Taiwan. Everyone knew that X was going to happen, but nobody did anything. Electricity prices, water prices, you know, overconstruction, you name it. Gravel digging. There's an endless list of these things. Nobody, With one exception. Yeah. The Thai administration did a pretty good job of protecting against the against COVID nineteen. Yeah, it's really amazing. Knowing it was coming. Yeah. Yeah. It's it seems but more I suppose more. <laughs> short term things tend to be a little bit better paid attention to than long term ones. Right, right. So uh we were looking at the number of rooms in quarantine places going up, the, the response is still there. The Thai administration is still, and today there was a beautiful moment when a, a woman had written in to complain that uh, her son had gotten a pink mask and people were going to make fun of him at school. So in today's presentation at the CDC, all of the presenters wore pink masks for the television, all the press, mm -hmm. for all the press. It was really a nice moment. So, and they, but apparently they described them with the word red. <laughs> so, oh, go right. figure. <laughs> so, yeah, you were mentioning um, there's two things that the, the government has done here. 
this one, Executive UN readies more quarantine rooms. Yeah. So they they decided to increase the number of rooms at quarantine facilities from 1,500 to 2,000. We don't now. Yeah. I, I, I look at this and I, I and I don't know. And tell me what you think. This could either mean that they are preparing for the future uh, in the sense of and they're just this is an abundance of caution. Or B, they think there's going to be another big break outbreak. I'm going with probably something like C. They realize they don't have enough quarantine rooms for all of the people who come over and have to be quarantined. Like, you know, right. I, I can name maybe three friends of mine who, who are getting jobs in the fall, right? And so mm-hmm. they have to come here and they have to do the 14-day quarantine and it has to be done somewhere where the government can oversee it. And I expect yeah. this is just okay. a practical measure for that kind of thing. So, hmm. you know, yeah, okay. uh, if they were really thinking about a big outbreak, there'd be a lot of other preparations going on. So they'd be ordering ventilators and stocking up masks. This, not so many masks would be going out, you know, that sort of thing. So right. I'm, uh, I'm actually, this is an optimistic sign. It looks like they're thinking about expanding their links with the outside. Hmm. Okay. And, and yeah, I think you're right. May and hopefully that's what this means. So sort of in a related thing. Don't need to talk about it too much. But Premier approves plan for four billion uh, disease prevention centers. So they want to move the the centers for disease control into a new facility. They're going to build a big new fancy center, and they're going to do. Uh, and it's aimed at strengthening Taiwan's capability in testing, research, and development of vaccines and biopharmaceuticals. Smart. That's what we need because that's going to be a very important market in the future. Yeah. We've already got a uh, huge, uh, you know, biomedical thing here. So, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not Which just... President Tsai knows a little of something about. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, we've got... Um, there's a whole big, there's a, there's a, there's a, you know, genetic, the companies that do genetic work. And there's also another set of companies that develop like, um, specialty products, you know, cosmetics and body washes and whatnot and, uh, food supplements and so on that draw on biomedical technologies. This is actually a, a relatively large, uh, industry here and growing at my university. We had a whole department. We had a department of biomedical, uh, whatchamacallit, or Department of Biomedicine or something. And they produce graduates that would, were to be fed into these businesses. So this is the kind of thing that actually we need to continue growing this industry. Especially considering the international market is heavily reliant on drug production out of uh, China. China. And you know they're mm. going to be looking to move stuff here where it's good and it's still inexpensive relative to overseas markets. Yeah. So this could be really so good, that's for, good for the world economy. Yeah. yeah. So what else is going on? Meanwhile, our friends in the KMT, Johnny Johnny Chang, the new chairman, what was he up to this week? Well, he's actually been making some interesting moves. Um, he, for example, he got a new head in for, there's a KMT Institute, which he sees as key to uh, basically being a think tank to help Taiwan or to help the party attract talent uh, and advise the party. Which, of course, is, is not a bad idea. The party needs new ideas. But he did something interesting with that that I, I thought was, that was worth noting. Many, many years ago, back in the early days of the KMT, it was referred to as the Institute of Revolutionary Practice. Now, at some point along the way, they decided that was a little too revolutionary sounding <laughs> and a little too changed the name sounding. to 
this really winning, exciting title, National Development Institute. <laughs> but Johnny Chang has reverted to the original name, Institute of Revolutionary Practice. Wow, that's wonderful. Another thing that he's done is he, um, for the whole online marketing push, he's clearly taking it very seriously. He managed to get the uh, one of the founders of Dcard, which is very popular, on board as the head of digital marketing for the KMT, and that's a big catch. So this is a, this is a heavyweight here. Hmm. So he's taking that very seriously. Apparently, he's going to to work to start cracking down on making sure that KMT officials raise the amount of money that they are obligated to. Because in the last few years, in theory, KMT officials were supposed to raise a certain amount of money per head, depending on their status and and, right. and rank in the party and, and in office. But a lot of them were just kind of going, yeah, whatever, and just ignoring it. So apparently he wants to bring put in some teeth on that. So he's making a lot of the right moves. But my sense, and let me in a second, tell me what you think. I, I think he's still got a massive uphill climb. So, so I get the sense that he understands what the problems are. Oh, another one. Uh, he was asked about the 92 consensus this last week. Mm -hmm. And he said, basically, ask China if it still exists. He said, <laughs> you know, th there has to be a role for the Republic of China in this. Otherwise, you know, there's nothing to talk about. Basically. Exactly. And we all know so, Beijing doesn't accept that. So. Go ahead. Right. They never have. Right. So he's making the right moves. I think he's very well aware of what the problems of the party are. But it fundamentally, it boils down to, you know, it's all well and good to have this fantastic digital marketing head and who will probably come up with a pretty good strategy. But the problem is, is you can't sell crap. They have to have a message that's going to resonate, particularly with younger voters. He's going to have to get consensus out of the party to be able to push that. Right. And that's a huge uphill climb. And the other is the party's finances are so absolutely abysmal that it's even if he gets all his officials to raise the money, that only makes a dent. It doesn't solve the problem. So you think at some time it's going to have to go into receivership and then declare bankruptcy and then all that good stuff? I don't see how or, the party... Or, or come up with another way to make a lot of money. Or tap all those millionaires. No way. <laughs> <laughs> they expect money to be kicked up to them, not, not for them to kick it back down. <laughs> right. I mean, it may make sense for the party... And now they, this would mean they would lose their subsidies and they would lose all the perks of being a party that previously. Uh, so they'd lose some perks like the, the subsidies and also, you know, having to there's certain hurdles for new parties. But if they were to basically go bankrupt and then start a new party, maybe just simply called the KMT, not the Chinese Nationalist Party, just the Nationalist Party for example, they could solve a lot of these financial problems and set something of a new image for themselves. Maybe, but then their assets would be seized, right? Well, their assets are already seized. Yeah, that's true. Well, I'm thinking of things <laughs> like the they, they still have some unseized ones, don't they? KMT headquarters, things yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting yeah. to contemplate. And so we just watch this every week to see what move that Johnny Jung has made. 
It was, mm-hmm. Wasn't there something he did, uh, something about voting for the young? Um, he was talking well, about... He's, go ahead. He, well, he's got that... Um, it it was last Sunday was the closing when he, uh, for building this new youth reform grouping. Right. Basically kind of a, I think, advisory group, uh-huh. which he would chair. Um, the the applications for that closed last Sunday. Um, but he basically said to young people, he said, look, don't complain about the KMT. Come on in and tell us what needs to be changed. Right. Which makes some sense. But here's here are my my thoughts on that is that I think that a lot of the people who would self-select to be on and register to and apply to be on that committee mm. are probably not the kind of people who are very representative of youth culture and thinking <laughs> in a broader sense. Right, right. I could be wrong, but that that's my sense. Hmm. Well, is there something else we wanted to talk about today? Oh, just quickly, the speaking of Wisconsin, which you brought up before. Yeah. Just a quick mention. Uh, the Verge came out with a piece. It's saying that essentially the Foxconn investments and the big factory, because they have a bunch of properties and factories and uh, research development or innovation centers, I think they were called. Most of them remain empty, although there has been a little bit of activity. But this is kind of an embarrassment for Taiwan um, because they're not living up to really any of the promises that they originally made. And so the Wisconsin government's pretty upset with them. And so Foxconn may lose out on billions in subsidies and tax breaks who, as a result. Who could have predicted this? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't everyone? <laughs> yeah. Although they, they did say that they're going to they're gonna, uh, work with MedTech to start uh, producing ventilators soon. Oh, well, that'll so that be, may, may that'll happen. keep them alive. Ventilators will keep them alive, so to speak. all right well on that uh happy note we will what's the word we want suffocate this (laughs) 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 all right y'all have a good uh weekend and week or whatever it's coming up in your part of the world and we'll see you again next week this has been brought to you by the taiwan report for more content like this become our patron at report.tw